Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Onyx. The Onyx Hunt app is your premier GPS hunting app that turns your mobile phone into a working GPS. Well, Onyx has the ability to be able to tell public and private lands, but one of the things that goes a little bit further is their possible access layer. So for states like Pennsylvania, you can turn on the PA possible access, and Onyx has mapped over 520,000 acres of possible access lands in Pennsylvania, which includes timber and land conservation groups and some other different companies. But these lands are marked because they have the potential to be open for public hunting. If you click on them, it'll give you information on the specific lands and you can research it. Their website normally tells you if it's open or not, but I use this quite a bit to be able to hunt private lands that are open to public hunting. So if you want to check out the Onyx Hunt app for yourself, head over to onyxmaps.com, use the coupon code EMW, that'll save yourself 20% off of the app. The show is also brought to you by Tethered. So Tethered has been creating the highest quality, lightweight, mobile hunting gear for the saddle hunting community. And the setup that I'm running is the Phantom Saddle, which is the Cadillac of saddles with a bunch of different comfort adjustments and to be able to adjust to to be able to sit all day in comfort for those rut sits. And then also the Predator Platform. And What's nice about on Tether's website, they'll walk you through, if you click on their starter kits, say the Phantom starter kit, you can click on that and it walks you through everything that you need. So otherwise you're trying to figure out, you know, what ropes you need, what, you know, Tether, lineman belt, all those different things. They put it step by step and you can build it into your budget or for whatever wants you want. So if you head over to tethernation.com, you could check all of that out and, the deal is still going on from our friends at Exodus. So this is the, I believe, yeah, this will be the last uh, episode that this deal will be available. So the Exodus Render, which is their Verizon 4G LTE uh, cell camera, uh, which I'm running two of those, is available for pre-sale once again. They had crazy demand for them back in November when they were running their their Black Friday deals, so they they were completely out of them, so they couldn't run the deal, and they're extending that for the listeners of the podcast here through the month of January. So this is only valid through January 2021. For $35 off of each camera, you can use the code RENDER35. That also works for their solar panel bundle and security bundle. So if you're not familiar with Exodus, all of their cameras are backed by a five-year no BS warranty and includes a five-year theft and damage coverage. In my opinion, they have the, the best trail camera warranty in the industry and customer support to be able to back that up. And I've been using, well, over half of my cameras are Exodus now, and I'm running about 30 of them. So I, I just found that they're extremely reliable. And if you do have an issue, customer service takes care of you. So head over to exodusoutdoorgear.com and check those out. All right. So I have some news to announce here and we have a brand new partner that will be advertising with us and I'll be telling you a lot more about this company as we go forward. So a company called Spartan Forge. I've 
been testing out Spartan Forge's The Outfitter program now for, I don't know, it's about three or four months, I think. And it's so to give you the short of it, I'm going to have Bill, the founder, on the podcast to talk about it. But the the outfitter is basically so us as hunters we require an accurate forecast of the best hunting days and and the best hunting spots to save time on scouting and you know actually executing hunts we're all on time schedule so you want to take advantage of the best days as possible so what spartan forge does they use machine learning and science-based products to take the guessing out of the equation so the outfitter has deer movement predictions based on millions of data points for your specific area. You type in your zip codes for your specific area. And what's different from this compared to other apps that predict movement is this is based off of data points, millions of data points, not someone's opinion. This is data points. And I, I think that's because at first, you know, I was kind of skeptical of anything that is of this sort and it's been extremely accurate as far as predicting that. And there's there's so much to it um, that, that it's too much to go over here at the beginning of this this podcast. But like I said, I'll get Bill on to talk about it more and explain it and why it's why it's different. And myself, Johnny Stewart, um, Greg Litzinger, just to name a few guys that that we've been testing it out and using it and some really respectable hunters that have been using it and having good success with it. So I think you would uh, really like checking that out. If you head over to spartanforge.ai, you can check that out and see if the outfitter is right for you. Okay. So for this episode's mountain buck Monday brought to you on a Tuesday, I want to give a story from Ryan Greenwald. So Ryan, the, the picture of this deer will be over on the East meets West Facebook and Instagram, but here's the story of it. So I found this spot during rifle season a few years back and was just trying to get away from the pressure. I found it using Onyx. It's a pressure point right on the saddle with a bunch of oak trees. After hunting the area, I realized the doe seemed always bed below it. So the first day of archery season, I seen this buck come up over the point and disappear to my left. I grunted and tried everything I could to spin him around. And he just wasn't having it. We, I, he would thrash his antlers around and just keep walking. Due to work this year, I wasn't able to make it back down to camp till Halloween. The weekend of Halloween, I wasn't sure if I'd get another chance to go back down, so it was all or nothing. I put a blind on a rock right in the middle of that saddle that kind of creates the pressure point. The Friday before Halloween, I set up first thing in the morning, about an hour and a half before light. He made a little scrape on the ground and covered it with tinks dough and heat. I had two dough come in to check it out that day and that was it. Next morning I came back, seeing the scrape was twice the size of what I had made it. So I put down some more tinks hoping that he would back and search that dough that left it and he did it right before dark on Halloween when I just started to think it was going to be a bust. I had a doe come running in, she kept looking back, so I figured a buck had to be chasing. The doe came all the way in to my scrape, sniffed it, and jumped she ran about 20 yards and went straight to feeding and then i seen him then i seen him show he got to about 25 yards and looked like he couldn't make up his mind whether he wanted to come check the scrape or follow his lady well he ended up turning his head away from me to look at the doe and i was able to shoot him and 
the next morning we backed out next morning went in and was able to find him and this is such a beautiful deer that ryan was able to kill and put some tactics in place to kill this big woods mountain buck so congratulations ryan and if you have a mountain buck monday story send me a message send me an email and i'd love to be able to share that okay so this week i i'm doing two different speaking events for backcountry hunters and anglers they're doing a winter extravaganza uh, it's all a virtual event it's free to sign up and uh, so if you head over to backcountryhunters.org, I'm doing a storytelling event this Wednesday, which would be January the 27th. Um, and then I'm also doing uh, a mountain bucks e-scouting type of video and question and answer on Thursday, January 28th. So those will be, I believe they're, I think the first one's at like 9.40 p.m. Eastern time. And then the second one with the scouting video and Q&A is at 8.15 p.m. Eastern time. So head over and uh, check that out. So if you head over to the website and, or you can just type into Google the winter extravaganza and sign up for it to, to be able to be a part of it. It's pretty cool. And I'm, I'm excited to, to get to do that. But uh, on this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Jason Matzinger. So Jason has been on the podcast in the past. It's been two years now since I've had him on. And I'm really excited to talk about this project, Landlocked, that um, that he will, will be the, the video should be releasing here shortly during the Badlands Film F- Festival. And uh, it's just a really, really cool Um really cool project and talking to him about that, talking about the elk hunting story and a little bit, of and, and also some gear, a little bit of a gear talk as well. So I'm really happy that Jason got to come on the, the podcast again and talk to me. I really enjoy talking to him and his show into high country has been running on the sportsman channel for a long time. He's got a ton of stuff on YouTube, really great guy does a lot for conservation and, I'm thankful to be able to interview him again. So I hope that you enjoy this episode and we'll talk to you next week. All right, we're live. Welcome back, Jason. It's been, uh, it's been a couple of years since I've had you on the podcast here. Yeah, it has. In fact, uh, it was probably, I, it actually just popped up on my Facebook memory that, uh, Three years ago, it was that I recorded the podcast with you at ATA. So it was almost to the date, ironically yeah. enough, uh, pretty close. But yeah, well, um, appreciate you having me back. Yeah. So for anyone listening, I'm I'm talking with Jason Matzinger here, and so Jason, yeah, he was at well, it was my first ATA show as I was under my own business. I had been to the show before, but I ended up meeting Jason out at the bar one night and just got him liquored up enough to agree to do a <laughs> podcast with me the next, next morning. So, uh, <laughs> that was, uh, that was a, a fun one. My head was hurting a little bit, but a little foggy. <laughs> yeah, no, those always some fun times there. And some of the best conversations are had in those moments too. So, yeah, that's for sure. But, uh, so Jason, b- b- before we get started here, just uh, give a, a brief background 
um, on yourself and just a little bit what you got going on right now. I, we, we dove into your full story in the, the first episode and anyone can go back and listen to it, but I want to hear a little bit of, for any new listeners or anything, what, what, who Jason is and what you've been up to. Yeah, I appreciate that. So, you know, the, the main thing I do is a show called Into High Country that just wrapped up season 11 on the Sportsman's Channel. Uh, we've got filmed most of season 12 um, that we're actually editing on right now. So um, it's been cool to see the show evolve through the years and hard to believe that we're moving into season 12. You know, never was even sure if we'd get to season two or three or four. It was it's it's interesting to see how things have changed and switched more from, you know, beating the concrete with a media kit at the trade shows to now, you know, social media presence and in the different ways that the industry's sort of shaped with the future. It's interesting. But yeah, we've been doing that. And and then a big part of what I've always done is the conservation work, you know, worked with started doing films with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and and uh, have since done stuff with Mule Deer Foundation and Wild Sheep Foundation and others. And we actually have some upcoming projects with, uh, with those partners as well. That's some exciting stuff. But um, yeah, it's uh, Western hunting. I'm born and raised here in Bozeman. And so just kind of hunting the same spots that I grew up hunting for the most most part and mix in a little traveling to other Western kind of spots from time to time. But, uh, just, uh, enjoy doing the hunting the same spots that I always have and finding success there and just kind of changing with the times as needed, but it's, uh, still love what I do and, and, uh, have, you know, in my opinion, the best partners out there and the best people, um, to work with. So, yeah, just love and life and can't say enough. <laughs> yeah, no, there's that, that's that's awesome and pretty impressive that you're going into season 12 already. I mean, I I've been watching your show for quite a while now and 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 just to to see that you've made this band that long um on a, is one speaks for the 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 content and the show that you're putting out there as well as um just it's just impressive to, to be that long doing that and in continuing to, to thrive in it. And in the, when speaking on the conservation side of it, the films that you've done there, if anyone hasn't checked those out, I'd highly recommend it. It, um, most of them are out on YouTube now, aren't they? They are. Yeah. Like, uh, project elk is on the Rocky mountain elk foundation page project mule deers on mule deer foundation page. And then circle of life is on the wild sheep foundation page. So those are the major, like the documentary style one hour films. Yep. Yeah. I've, I think I've watched, well, I've watched all of them, but I've watched project elk probably a dozen times, uh, before it's a, it's, it's, it's a really good and powerful piece. So, I, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to have you on here. And, and one of the things that I, I wanted to talk to you about, well, one of the main things is this, uh, project landlocked. Is that what it's called by a definition? Yep. Yep. That's going to be the official title for the full length feature film that we're working on currently. Yeah. And are you, are you working with Onyx on that? 
Yep, Onyx Maps. In fact, today we finalized everything is going to be the presenting sponsor of the film. So pretty jacked about that because as far as, you know, this, the project except itself and the partners I have, they're definitely the ones that make the most sense to uh, work with on it. It's a, They've put a lot of work into the research and stuff that's going to be sort of talked about in this film. Yeah. Yeah, I've... I've um been reading the landlocked reports that Onyx has been putting out for the last few years. And just this year, or I guess last year in 2020, they came out with one that was the mid-Atlantic region, which is New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. So that was more at home to, to myself personally. And it, you know, at first it seemed like it was, you know, more of a, a, we'll go into the details of what, what that means, but a problem out West, but realized there was a lot of a lot of relevancy even here in the East coast as well. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And that's what I look forward to uh, about this film is I think whether you do live out West or whether you live in your region, I think it'll connect because those, those public lands that are inaccessible kind of do exist all over the United States. Um, There's some areas that hold more, but it is relevant to, to, anyone that's ever went out there and tried to, you know, dig deeper, get away from people or just find a new spot, you know, you've run into this at one point or another, I believe. Yeah. So if, if you would explain a little bit the problem as far as what landlocked means and, and kind of the, the basis behind the project. Well, the, the project all started really because, um, I mean, I didn't draw the elk tag that I normally draw this year. And uh, that's an area that I have 10 years of research in. That's where I've hunted, you know, a lot the last seven years anyway, and um, just didn't get the tag. And so I looked at it. I I had the general Montana tag. I knew it was going to be crowded um, this year, like we already touched. Uh, It's been crowded no matter where you've been. So I knew we were going to be working up against that. And so instead of just sort of fighting through it, I wanted to do something, you know, more exciting and bigger instead of looking at it as a, you know, what could be sort of an off year from where I really would like to be elk hunting. So that's really where it all started. And then um, the way that everything sort of came together was seven years ago at the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation banquet here in Bozeman, I purchased two hours of flight time and dinner for two in Big Sky, Montana as a, it was a donation item. And I know the pilot, he's a local guy and nobody was really bidding on it. And so as it sat there and nobody was bidding on it, you know, I started getting nervous because I had never bid on anything in a live auction before, but I also knew what flight time cost, you know? Yeah. And so I ended up getting that two hours of flight time and dinner for two, uh, for $950. And you could, you could actually fit four people in the helicopter total. So if you wanted to bring like some other buddies, you could do that. And so I felt like I got a screaming deal. Well, fast forward seven years, I still hadn't cashed in on that time. I had never went and done the ride or anything like that. I guess I just 
never felt like I had found something special enough. Well, this year, him and I touch base and he goes, man, what do you want to do with that time? And I said, well, do I have to go to Big Sky or can I just, he goes, no, man. He goes, my helicopter doesn't care what direction it goes. You know, I owe you that time. And so whatever you want to do. So then it really got the wheels turning. And uh, so we ended up here, which is Project Landlocked, which the whole idea behind it was to uh, just sort of highlight the amount of landlocked public land there is across specifically the West with this project. Um, if you don't know what landlocked land it is, it's it's a public land that's entirely surrounded by private holdings. So there's no way to access it without permission from a private landowner. Um, there is pieces that are completely surrounded and then there's also uh, what they call checkerboard uh, public lands uh, across the West. And that's where, um, like say in Montana, you cannot cross on a corner. Uh, corner crossing is not allowed or permitted. So even though those public lands touch on a corner, you can't step across that uh, legally. So um, there's 15.87 million acres across the West that are public lands that are landlocked. Um, the reason that a lot of that checkerboard land was put into place was along the railroad for expansion. Um, the reasons it was put in place, place originally don't really apply now. So we're kind of in this weird time uh, in the world of more people than ever needing a place to go. And, um, you know, you can't make more land. It's sitting there. How do we access it without treading on the private landowners, that sort of thing. So without getting too long-winded, the project really just wanted to um, highlight landlocked public land, fly into an area, see what could be accessed, you know, what is in there, if we could get there, and just see what it was like in an area that I had always wondered, you know, and and we went in there and just had a great hunt. Everything went as planned on the second morning of hunting. Um, we ended up calling a bull in into five yards at one point, and then he kind of saw me draw and flared back to 10 yards, and I was able to shoot him there. And I mean, it just was flawless. The From where we sort of scouted camp from Onyx to find water, uh, to all the little things you got to think about when you've never had a chance to lay eyes on it and look at that you're sort of putting all your eggs in one basket and you know once you're there you can't you can't leave without trespassing unless you call that helicopter so it's <laughs> yeah. a, it was a fun project and and as we continue to dig deeper into the topic it continues to snowball and get more complicated and more things to consider and you know, I learn more as, as we go. So I'm really excited. We, we, you know, hope to launch this project like sometime this summer. Okay. So before I go into the, the hunt a little more, I want to talk about, so these landlocked 
piece is as a part of this project, and I know it's a lot bigger than this. Like, what are what are some ways? Uh, I'm guessing that it has to do with trying to find ways to access that land, um, or and what are some ways that you could or potential like? I, is that, I know that's not a very easy question, but is there any ideas or things that you could do to be able to access that land? I mean, I think there's a lot of ideas that could be looked into for the future. It's, it's, I don't think like any sort of conservation efforts, I don't think anything could be done with one idea or one big brush stroke. I think each region would take specific uh, um, reasons for it and, and things, but you know, like to my knowledge in the Dakotas, um, you know, corner crossing is permitted, you know, so that's a state to state thing. So, you know, talking with the guys at OnX, it's like, well, what if they were to make corner crossing legal? Um, what would that do? Is that a good option? Uh, what are the different things to consider? And and the reality is that even with the best mapping technology, you know, even the most honest guy is not going to be able to stay on public land um, with the corner crossing. According to the experts behind a lot of this, you need at least 10 foot around that corner pin to safely say that you're never going to trespass on private property. And so, you know, the things you need to look at is is the landowners that border those properties, you know, what are, what do they stand to lose um, over the deal or what do they stand to gain? Um, you know, if you, if it's certain areas, they may get a bunch of fence damage where people are going back and forth. And then even though it may not be major repairs over time, it becomes repairs, you know, so that shouldn't be put on them. So, you know, do you look at building fence crossings that are little ladder crossings where you never even actually touch the fence lines? Um, you know, there's been a lot of different things discussed on the corner crossing thing. And I think the reality is, is until the laws are passed and until uh, there's a little more of a buffer around those corner pins, it's it's a hard one. It's a sticky situation to, to come up with with a solution for that. And for the, the actual landlocked that are 100% surrounded by private, I mean, that's a tough one because, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm all about private landowner rights and I would never ask those guys to just let people tread across their stuff to go get to one chunk of public. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe it's looking at combining a lot of those checkerboard public lands into one chunk and making an area and combining a lot of the, you know, the private holdings that are checkerboard within it into one chunk and making it so the private guy ends up with the same amount of property where he's not having to give any access through anything. And the private and the public guys have their chunk without having to worry about those corners and stuff. So it's, there's a lot of work to be done, but, uh, the beauty of it is, is, you know, it's, we have that to discuss, you know, the, this film isn't to say this is the answer or we have the answers. It's just merely to bring up the fact that, you know, experts predict in the next 30 or in the next 10 years, we're going to have upwards to 30 million more people in the United States alone. 
in the next 10 years. So, you know, I think about how crowded it was this year. And I don't know if because of the pandemic, if we're seeing it overinflated from what it's going to be and when all this levels out, hopefully it does knock on wood. Or if this is the way it's always going to be and progressively get worse, it's hard to say. But, uh, you know, I think Colorado and those areas around Denver are a prime example of I've too many people into public land and the next thing you know that the landscapes not being taken care of the you know the the diversity of the the wildlife and the habitat there is being you know kind of one thread at a time taken apart and and it's and you know, yet we have all this public land that's sitting out there that if we could find common ground, so to speak, maybe we could find a way to, you know, spread people out. Mm-hmm. So that's a- like I said, we certainly don't have answers for it all, but it's uh it's it's gonna be an increasingly uh it's it's not a topic that's gonna go away. Yeah. No, I, and I think I think the whole just awareness to it, you know, I mean, I, I didn't know much about this. Being in the East, it's not as prevalent that that, that was that, that big of a deal and still, until I started Western hunting and looking Western hunting and looking at maps and, and starting to see these pieces. And I'm like, you know, again, coming from someone like myself that didn't know anything ab- about that, I'd be like, well, how do you get to these pieces well obviously that's a lot of the problem and 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 at first you know i thought it was more so and like i I see a lot of checkerboard and like wyoming and stuff looking at at maps and and i thought it was more in just that open country but it sounds like it's even in some of the the mountainous regions as well is that correct it is now the major swaths of checkerboard together that you do see through parts of wyoming Mm -hmm. um that's definitely the most prevalent in kind of one area. Wyoming has the most landlocked public land of any of the Western states. But in Montana, you don't find those big of swaths of that checkerboard, but you still find a lot of that inter- intermingled throughout the private and stuff like that, you know? And um, so how did that, how did that start? I know you were saying about the railroad, but then, then, did sections did the BLM just buy up certain sections or how did that lay out that way? Yeah. I mean, basically when they were moving the railroad West, they just saved every other section for private, you know, to be able to sell, make money and be able to keep expanding if they needed to, but still have that public in the middle. You know, they really didn't know what they were doing. So they were trying to set it up for, economic incentive for people to want to move west but still have enough of it in the government hands to where you know it nobody could own too much at one time so it was really just sort of a a work in progress as you know the railroad pushed east or west and them trying to just do the best they could at the time and that's where in Wyoming, you find a lot of those along where the railroad ran through there is it's really prevalent through there. And some of those places when you go to antelope hunt and yeah. stuff. Um, but 
that's where it's just not as relevant now. And thankfully, a lot of those people in those areas, I remember when we drew Wyoming antelope there two years ago, um, there was one private landowner that owned a lot of those checkerboarded private spots in between the BLM. And they just kind of opened it up to whoever wanted to hunt. They didn't, you know, they made it knowledge that you could go hunt it. They were open to hunting. And so a lot of times in those areas where it's just out of control, those bigger landowners are pretty willing to work with the people. It's, it's when you get closer to the cities and stuff where it becomes a little trickier, I think. Yeah. Especially where people are trying to find those honey holes within an hour of home and, you know, those are getting hit harder and harder. So, you know, and that's, it's something I got an email from a a guy that listens to the podcast one day and he he said something about, um, well, it was kind of telling me not to talk about elk hunting anymore because he's like, he's like people that do podcasts and all this stuff are a reason why it's becoming overcrowded and everything. And, and I, I don't know, maybe there's, if, if, uh, if I was someone like Joe Rogan, that that could impact a little bit more, but, and like what you were saying, the population increase has probably a lot more to do with it than any sort of media that's, you know, you know, bringing up Western hunting and stuff. And, and you got places like Bozeman, they're blowing up and in, in Boise and Denver and yeah. all those places. I mean, I was in, before I was telling you, before we started recording, my brother moved to Montana, but he lived just outside of Denver prior to that. And when I was out there this summer, we were just out there, I think it just, just out to visit and we were going to go camping. And the, we had, it took like what normally would be a 45 minute drive during the week took like almost three hours just because of traffic leaving the city going out into the mountains you know there's there's a lot of things that come into play when it when it comes into those things and it's uh it is kind of alarming at the the same time um but yeah that's i i'm i'm excited to see this this project that you're working on and just kind of learn more about it you know i was just i've been so interested reading those reports that onyx has put out uh just like i said it's just it's incredible to be able to see that i mean and just in um you know out west there's i think wyoming was somewhere like three million acres that are landlocked and so when you look at pennsylvania twenty-seven thousand doesn't seem like nearly as much but at the same time that's still twenty-seven thousand acres that are public that aren't being able to to be accessed and it's just it's definitely something to to think about yeah for sure and and like i said i mean the film is more to just bring awareness about the fact that we have an ever-growing population we have a sector of public land out there that's inaccessible i for one am all about private landowner rights so how do we meet the needs of the private landowner and continue to provide for them what they need to provide for us and and still the public landowner the public land hunter the people that need a place to go for a hike or you know they don't have to be a hunter just a place to enjoy you know meet their needs as well and it, like i said it's it's not a conversation that's going to go away. It's only going to get more difficult as, as things move on. And, um, you know, I, I hunted New Zealand one year for red stag, me and a friend went down there, Willie Schmidt, 
and we hunted free range red stag. And uh, my eyes were really open down there because there's zero public land in Argentina. And the poaching and trespassing is so bad there that nobody tries to control it. So it's interesting that the more control the private landowner has over the property itself, the less control they'll ultimately end up having when it's, you know, when there's nowhere for people to go um, mm-hmm. because they will find a way. And like in Argentina, we'd be sitting there eating dinner at night. You would see flashlights going all through the ranch that we were hunting, you know, and the landowners would be sitting there eating dinner with us and they wouldn't even bat an eye. I mean, it was barely even a conversation piece because they know that those people aren't poachers in the sense of like the poachers are here. You know, they're, they're good people that just need a place to go. And most of them are just feeding that stuff to their families. They're certainly not trophy hunting. They're not out there to kill the biggest stag or the biggest axis deer. Mm-hmm. They just, they're just trying to provide and do things that mankind has always done. And, uh, it was, it was, yeah, it really became real when you're in a place where there is no public land and you realize that the private landowner rights then are far less than they are when there's public land. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, yeah. And then that all, yeah, that definitely comes back. So I'm, I'm totally in agreement with you. I mean, I have so much respect for private landowners. I mean, they have the land for a reason. They work for it of some sort and, and it's theirs, you know, it's their, their land to be able to do. So it had to be beneficial if there was some way to be able to, to cross it or do anything, it's gotta be something that's beneficial to them and obviously agreed upon, but yeah, well, um, to, to dive a little bit into the specific hunt that you did with the helicopter going in, I remember seeing, well, I saw it in the, the prime Nexus commercial and then you had, uh, documented some of it on Instagram when the hunt was going on there. And I just yeah. want to, I want to hear more about that hunt specifically. So in the the area that you went into, was it kind of a, a mountainous region or was it more open country? What, what, what was the kind of layout there? It was sort of right on the transition from where you get to really steep mountainous country to more into that rolling country. But yeah, I would say as the most part, it or for the most part, it was more mountains than open country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, when, when Which you'll find that a lot in Montana, just because our general tags kind of are more based on the western part of the state where it is more mountainous, timbered, rough country mm-hmm. versus where a lot of the the draw tags are out in the open badlands and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. So when when you when you were in there looking for for elk, was it? did you find it to be harder, easier? Were they less pressured? Like what, what did that kind of look like? Was it completely different than hunting any other public land or pretty similar? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I, it was, uh, I don't know if it was just where we were at or timing or, or what, I mean, I've, you know, called bulls in on public land before. Um, it's getting harder all the time, but this bull, in particular, I mean, we honestly hadn't had an opportunity up until the time of the bull that I killed. Like we had seen elk far off and we had heard bugles, but we 
hadn't really got anyone playing the game yet or got in the zone where I felt like we were even, you know, close to killing a bull. And then this one answered that second morning, he came out and he raked his horns for a while and then he went back in and then he answered again and came back out. And I mean, he just came on a line. In fact, (laughs) I have to laugh. I'm not laughing at him. I'm laughing with him, but Tom Petrie, I was showing him the, uh, the video and he's like it just makes me laugh he's like i've been trying for six years to kill an elk with my bow and he goes you literally walk out there and you like trip on your bugle and this bull just comes screaming into you he's like i just all i can do is laugh man yeah (laughs) and honestly i just i yeah right bull right time or right location i don't know but it definitely was like hunting elk the way that elk hunting should be very unpressured i mean he came in across a wide open field we could see him coming bugling talking relaxed you know he didn't move the way a pressured elk moved um so yeah i would say we got everything that i dreamed you would think you would get back there Mm -hmm. you know yeah everything went smooth. I mean, from the weather on the fly days to the, you know, where we got the elk to the pack out to the, just, it really went better. Um, yeah. And I mean, definitely different in the respect now that I think about it and, and digging more than just beyond my elk hunt specifically, but like, yeah, the things you don't get when you're camped off the side of a logging road on public land is, like we had bulls bugling right next to our tent while we were cooking our, you know, Heather's choice stuff and sitting around looking at footage and photos and stuff. I mean, there was a bull popping off right in the timber right next to us where, I mean, I think those are the little differences that I, well, little big differences that I noticed <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> from there to just, you know, fighting for a spot in a, you know, a, a well-known public land area. I don't think you're going to get those bulls wandering through camp bugling at night a whole lot, unless the moon is right and the temperature's right. And the, <laughs> the cow is right. And the bull is right. And yeah, it, it's rare. Yeah. So we, yeah. we definitely checked the boxes of what I thought or hoped from on that hunt, you know, a lot of bears, tons of bears. Um, and yeah, just the adventure we really hoped for. We only heard one four-wheeler in the discs in the time we were in there, and that was the only sort of human interaction that we uh, um, witnessed the whole time we were in there. And that was about it. So it was uh, pretty amazing, you know, definitely something I wanted to do for a long time. And I just never really put it all together. It always kind of scared me. There's a lot of logistics and things that go into it, especially when you're filming a TV show and, and uh, you know, there's all the film permitting and, you know, just all the, all the things you have to do to make sure you're covered and, you know, don't end up overseeing something. And next thing you know, you're, doing something you shouldn't be or whatever when you're when you involve that many elements to a hunt yeah there's a lot to think about you know yeah i was always kind of nervous but it went really smooth 
Yeah, that would be kind of that would be definitely kind of stressful. And then <laughs> trying to so did you did you set up like a, a wall tent or a wall tent or was that too much for the helicopter? Like you just had regular like your backpack and tents type of deal. Yeah, we just had uh, two two man stone glacier tents that we took with us, and so I I took one and slept in it by myself, <laughs> and then Ryan and, and Casey uh, slept in the other one together. Okay. So. <laughs> I pulled rank on that one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Uh, um, Yeah. And and just like like I said that I I flew into uh, Alaska this year, the first time ever flying into a hunting location. And, and I'm sure it was very similar there. It's, it's, it's pretty neat to be dropped off and it's a, it's a feeling of, I hope I didn't forget anything, which we, we forgot all of our lighters, which was kind of funny because we had to put them in our carry on bag for the commercial flights. And then when we got to d- switching everything over, forgot to grab all the lighters. So <laughs> use the, the igniter on the jet boil to get any fire oh, started sure. or anything else that we <laughs> had to do. But, uh, it was just an interesting aspect when you fly into somewhere. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's, uh, the it's interesting you know the less you have and the and sort of simplify your life like that it really puts it into perspective how much we waste from day to day when we're back home and and we do have everything at our fingertips you know just the amount of garbage that you throw away to how you throw it away to all the little things you don't think about really sink in there and it makes you realize how much better of a human you could really be if you you know, yeah, we all have to be. Yeah, that's a that's a great perspective of it. And you know, I think about it when, for the amount of stuff that I took to Alaska, like when we had got away everything, obviously for the the plane. So I had you know my weapons case that was stuffed with clothes and stuff weighed fifty pounds, and I had one other bag that weighed fifty pounds. That was it for you know camping in the middle of nowhere, Alaska. Then when I went elk hunting in Idaho, the last or in 2019, and we were truck camping, my truck was packed right to the top of my (laughs) cap. There was, there was things blowing out of every doorway. It seemed like, you know, (laughs) full of stuff. And, uh, and that's even, you know, minimalist compared to what you live on a, you know, in a regular day. Um, so it's just, it's just, it's funny when you look at it that way and, uh, when you you have to simplify it, you can. Yeah. It's like the less you have, the less you realize you need. Yeah. So what was your, um, what was a little bit different topic? So what was your experience with the, the new prime Nexus bow? Well, it was fast and furious for me on that hunt, just because it was real quick turnaround time. Yeah. You know, um, I had that bow for a day and a half before we took off to go on this hunt. So, and it was a pr- just still in the prototype stages. So, uh, we were, yeah, it was interesting. But since then, you know, I've got the the factory run of it and um, have just really enjoyed the you know, the handle. And it's, it's funny that, uh, that's all, you know, that comes up first, but it, when they really break it down to that, that's your one connectivity point to the bow. It's almost fascinating to me that more bow companies haven't put more focus into the handle. You know, when your grip is everything and and your, 
you know, that bow in your hand really is everything. Um, I'm it's, it's shocking more people haven't went that route. So just with that in mind, you know, in the arrow gel, um, you instantly notice less shock on it. Uh, you know, the vibration out of the hand, the noise, it's the quietest bow yet. It's the least vibration of any bow yet. So it's interesting because what they were trying to solve and which they did solve was making it so when you've got to hold that bow handle for so long, your hand can still stay warm. You know, even if you're having to sit and stand all day long, your hand doesn't just get frozen on that handle. And I think anybody that's bow hunted long enough, that doesn't take much explaining. No, no. Um, you find interesting ways to hold your bow when your hands are frozen. That's or for sure. So. I, I, t- I take a medical wrap and I wrap it around my handle and then take hockey tape on top of it. And that's how I've done it <laughs> to try to keep that insulated. So when I heard about this one coming out, I was pretty excited. I was like that that eliminates all that messing around and adds a bunch of other benefits. Like you were saying with the, the vibration and the, the noise, which sounds like For they sure. were more like byproducts of it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like you say, the, what they discovered because of it, even though they were going into it with different intentions. And so the whole thought process behind it to where it's, you know, is now is they've found good success with it. And I'm excited to get back out and, you know, start hunting with the, the run of the line model and really get it dialed. I mean, get into that groove with it. It's, uh, it's always fun to, you know, work those bows into where they're just an extension of your arm and you don't have to think about the shot. And, and, uh, so yeah, um, it's been, it's been good. You know, I can't say enough. Luckily (laughs) on that, uh, elk hunt, he ran into, 10 yards so it took a lot of the guesswork out of it for me after only having it a couple of days but yeah but no it's what i love about the guys at you know prime is they're always just laser focused on their thing they're never really in a race with anybody else or looking what succeeded with a different company you know the year before at ata or whatever they just want to improve what they build and that's the engineer mind in them and um, so it's always interesting to, to see what they come up with next. And it's, it's cool. And I, I even told those guys, you know, it's interesting when I talk to people and they go into it with a completely unbiased opinion, like I'm just going to shoot every bow I can get my hands on. And I'm just going to let the bow pick itself. You know, I'm not going to pick the bow, the bow will pick me kind of thing. And, and so many times at the end of that, ordeal I'll talk to the people and I'll say well, why'd you end up going with that bow versus the other bow and you know it's never like a well this one was four f- feet per second faster or you know this one I just noticed was just a touch lighter it was always uh man I just really like the way this one felt in my hand or I really like this handle it just sat good in my hand so it's once again it's it's interesting interesting to me with that that more bow companies haven't sort of put focus into that and yeah and because yeah. so many people land on that as the deciding factor so to improve on that is awesome in, you know and when i when i first started shooting a prime it, i worked at an archery shop and i could shoot any bow 
that was in the store. Every year I got a, a new bow. I'd use my store hours to buy whatever, you know, model was that, that I wanted at the time. And, uh, and I shot all of them and just picked which one felt best. And f- that's how I ended up with prime. And then there's so many other things now with it that, that make me, you know, like prime. And then the company itself is just, is incredible. The people behind it, the, um, I, I remember the one, uh, the one day we were working in the bow shop and it was just about, I think it was just about closing time. And Matt Grace, the owner just walked into our shop and outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, just to ask us what we thought of things and how things were, were doing and really like cared about our opinion. And I was like, you know what, that's, that's a company I can stand behind when it comes down to it. So. Yeah, that's great. I've, I've got a lot of stories like that about the Graces myself too, just very down to earth. Uh, great people care about, you know, the, the customer and what they think of the product, right. To the, the employees and the people that work with them. I mean, they're just very kind and, and caring and giving people, you know, yeah. I've always yeah. been super honored to work with them and their company. Awesome. Well, yeah, I just, I was just thinking about that when we were talking about the commercial and seeing you with it, I wanted to get your, your firsthand, you know, thoughts on it. But, um, the, the other, the other thing, Jason is, is there anything else that you use this year from a gear perspective that was either new or something that kind of stood out for you? I'm always interested to hear about anything like that, that you think that would be useful to tell anybody about. Well, I mean, I think once again, a big part of this year for me, which it's nothing new, but it kind of reinforced just, you know, why I like it so much is on X, you know, this year was, like I said, the, the Wyoming hunt for me didn't go as planned. I didn't draw the same elk tag as I normally draw. I was researching a lot of new areas. I was, I was hunting in a lot of spots, trying to help friends in areas I had never hunted before. And so once again, on X proved to be that tool that I just continually every single hunt this year found myself just staring at trying to find that little hidden gem that I hadn't found yet or a way to access an area I hadn't got to yet or, you know, uh, something that might be worth looking into or, you know, that's that tool just continues to prove itself. But, um, you know, I would say one of the other tools that uh, I use this year that stands out to me um, is the uh, two blade folder from Havilon that they came out with last year. Um, I've always been a big fan of Havilon knives and this year they actually came on as a partner and um, they have a full a two blade folder that's got their sort of traditional caping blade on one side. And then the other side is more of like a, uh, not boning, not deboning, but like, uh, you know, just really for getting there knocking the quarters off and getting the, you know, the quarters or the, uh, back straps and tenderloins and things out. So that was one tool I found myself every hunt pulling out at the end of the hunt, if it was successful. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I could, I have several different knives and kits and things I could go to. And I found myself sort of always ending up there because whether it was at the process of just opening up the the deer the elk or the process of finishing caping off the head it was sort of the one that i could pull out and 
and had the blade that I needed for both. So that was a big one for me. Um, you know, I like the new M3s, the new Montec M3s, the solid broadheads from G5. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was brilliant. I mean, in my opinion, the Montec has always been the best broadhead ever invented in my mind. And there was only really one way to make it better, and they did it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then they came out with the four-blade striker. Like, I think the three-blade striker speaks for itself. It's uh, known for sharpest broad, broad, uh, blades in the industry. And then, you know, once again, there was, it's just pretty cool to add another blade to that and get the four blade striker. So they did some cool stuff on the, on the broadhead side that fascinates me. I've always been more of a fixed blade guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, it seems like you know, there's just so many products I could talk about yeah. that I enjoy and the reasons I pick them for, you know, from the, the boots, Schnee's came out with the pair of Kestrels last year. That's really hit that lightweight early season bow hunting boot for me that, um, I've, I wore the crap out of last year. And, uh, so really enjoyed that product, which was new last year, but, um, I'm going to have to look into those. I'm I'm actually in the process of boot buying right now for an early season boot. I had a pair of Loas I've had for the last six years that have done good for me, but I want something, I want to try something a little bit different, a little bit lighter, uh, possibly. And just, yeah, I'm just exploring options out there and boots are always a, a tough one to, cause they fit everybody differently and always trying to figure out what's the, the right option, mm-hmm. but yeah, they do. Well, the Kestrel, I've really enjoyed it. It's been a good, you know, I wore it everything from turkey and shed hunting through some of the later part of spring bear. Uh, and then all of like antelope archery season, early September for archery, um, probably about midway through October's when I went to a little heavier boot. But yeah. other than that, that was the one that got the majority of the wear and tear this year. Gotcha. So, huh. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, I could go on and on yeah. about stuff that uh, <laughs> no, I, I've I, enjoyed using. No, I was just, yeah, we were just talking a little bit about the, the bow there. And I always, um, I, I, I like to kind of figure out what people are using, just get some new ideas. Not like I really need anything else, but uh, it's, it's one of those <laughs> things that uh, I always find myself down the rabbit hole of. But um, lastly, Jason, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but what what do you got planned for 2021 any ideas as far as hunts um i know draws and stuff haven't uh come out yet but as far as do you have anything that that you're looking forward to or think you might want to do well i mean aside from just uh the the same stuff that i've done for years you know um one thing i want to do immediately is uh like i was telling you before we started recording i'd like to try to film and and hunt a lion without the use of dogs and just try to track it down and just film sort of you know the difference between a tom and a female track and where to look for lion tracks when you're trying to break apart a whole mountain range and why are you there and why are they there and i think that would be a fascinating thing i've i've been a lion hunter since i was uh, 
I shot my first lion with a bow when I was 12 years old. And although I don't have hounds right now, I still have that love for, you know, the chase. So, um, I just think it would be a great story to tell and a different way to step to tell it. So in the, in the immediate, I'm excited about getting out, doing some of that and some predator calling. And then we'll just see if that border opens up. I've uh, supposed to go hunting doll sheep in the Northwest territories in the third week of July. So that was a hunt that's been postponed this year because, or to this year, because last year the border was closed. So fingers are crossed. We can start some of that international travel and open up some more options. But um, right now those are the main things on the list and we'll just see kind of the way the, what the future holds here, the draw odds and see where we need to fill in the blanks, whether that's heading to, you know, Oklahoma again, chasing whitetails or just doing something out of the norm like that. Yeah. I was actually talking to Jared from Onyx today and I told him I was going to be talking with you and he's like, Oh, he's like, yeah, I met him down in, in Oklahoma. You guys whitetail hunted together. So. Yeah. That was a fun hunt. Yeah. That's cool. Well, sounds like you got a, a good year of, well, another good year of plans coming up here. That, that sheep hunt, that's a, that's a dream of mine for sure. So I'll be, I hope you get to do that and, and be looking it's, forward uh, to checking it out. It's one of those things I decided I would never have the money. I would never have the time. I could never convince myself that, you know, it was <laughs> uh, a good time to do it. So I think it was five years ago down at the Wild Sheep Foundation in Reno. Um, I talked to Dustin Rowe and sort of worked out the deal where he was going to guide me with uh, uh, in an area with Canal Outfitters. And he said, if you do this hunt, I'll, I'll go with you on it. And I said, fair enough. So I just, I didn't even give myself time to think about it. <laughs> I just went and put my name down on it. And so for the past five years, we've been or we, I've been paying for it and, uh, and it's, it's here. So it's, it's one of those things that I think, you know, once you set your mind to it and you, you plan far enough ahead, it's a lot easier than a guy thinks if it's, uh, something that he's serious about, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's, that's definitely a goal of mine. And that's the same thing. I look at the, the, tag costs of, or just the cost of the hunt in general. And it's discouraging when you look at it, but really if you want anything, if you plan enough and you, you can, if you want it bad enough, you'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> I don't know. That's been, been my mentality with it at least, but anyway, yeah. well, no, those are the big ones this year. Cool. Well, Jason, where can people find uh, some more information on you, some of the content that you're putting out? I know you said the Sportsman Channel, but can give me some other places where they can find you. Yeah, so we're on the Sportsman's Channel from July to December. So right now we're actually off the air until this coming July. But I do have a YouTube channel that's under my name, Jason Matzinger, as well as uh, on social media. It's uh, Jason Matzinger Official on Instagram and Facebook. Um, we also have all of our present and past episodes on my outdoor TV and, uh, elknetwork.com. So, uh, my website is into highcountry.com, but, um, yeah, I'd say the place to watch most of our stuff is, uh, my YouTube channel. 
Awesome. Yeah, if you just type in your name on Google, he'll be able to find it out. (laughs) It'll lead you somewhere. Yeah, it'll lead you somewhere. (laughs) Uh, Well, anyway, Jason, I really appreciate you coming on. It was good good talking to you again and and uh sure. yeah getting to getting to chat a little bit so thank you yeah thank you man i've been looking forward to it it's been been too long and i knew i wasn't gonna see it ata so i'm uh appreciate you giving me the opportunity and good seeing your face again <laughs> that sounds good buddy well <laughs> hopefully next time i get to, to see you in person rather than across the screen <laughs> <laughs> for sure well thanks again bo i sure appreciate it man Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.